President Biden recently signed a pardon for everyone who was in federal custody or who had been charged for the simple possession of marijuana. Is this how we should go about solving the drug problems in this country? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. President Biden recently issued a pardon that pardoned something like 6,500 people that had been charged in federal courts with simple possession of marijuana. None of them are actually in custody because a while ago the executive branch stopped enforcing the law. It is still enforced in Washington, D.C., so there's thousands of people that received a pardon at that level, but nobody really has a count yet, or even how many people are in prison. But there's obviously been a lot of discussion in our country about the states are doing things that are different than what the federal government does. And so President Biden has now split the legislative branch from the executive branch. Is this how we should have be making drug policy? And, you know, beyond that, what drug policy should we have as a nation? You know, I don't think the point is to spend all that much time talking about the this recent, you know, pardon. But, um, you know, when when you look at it, it's definitely part of uh, the, a trend for quite a while now where people are, you know, the laws are in the books, but mo- a lot of people aren't a fan of the laws. And so there's, you know, different ways that they're bypassed um, by at the, you know, between the state and the federal government, and in this case, between one branch of the federal government and the other. And I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, like you were saying, it's just another step along the, along the, a process that has already been going on. Right. And I mean, obviously he did it before with the student loan bailout that we talked about on a different podcast, but it seems more and more that as a country, we're not willing to go through the legislative process and not through going through the legislative process has real costs. I mean, because if you actually think about it, I mean, the reason why it has real cost in one sense is because we're a representative democracy. I mean, there's just, the representatives really are there to represent the will of the people. And while we can look at it and say there's flaws with how that happens and there's issues with that happen, it definitely doesn't happen when the representatives get don't actually have to sit down and have a discussion and they don't actually have to fight something out. Instead, somebody else just comes in and says, I'm going to do this. But isn't President Biden a representative of the people as well? He's not a representative. Uh, he's not. He was not elected to represent them legislatively. And I think that's I mean, there's really specific differences of that. You don't you don't get a president because you believe his his skill is crafting legislative is crafting laws. You get him because he's good at executing. I mean, in that he's, I mean, he's leading. Right. Which is very different than what legislatures do. Right. But, but, you know, I mean, one thing to point out about it is it is a legal thing to do. The president has the power to pardon. There's in the Constitution, he's given the power to pardon everything, I believe, except treason. So, you know, it's not a normal thing for the president to say anyone who committed this crime, I'm going to pardon. It has happened before with, uh, you know, after the Draft uh, Dodgers in Vietnam. Right. And, I, you know, even with uh, or Andrew uh, Johnson after the Civil War did a blanket pardon. So, you know, there is some precedent for it. Um, but the the recourse for that, if the legislature doesn't like it, because there is a check and balance, I mean, they they could impeach him theoretically for it. But on the other hand, it is something that is, uh, you know, the people's minds may have changed about it since de- in decades past. So I don't think that there, there's any chance they're going to do that. Right. But I mean, my concern about it has a lot more to do with, first of all, he's stating all these things. And there's no pushback on it because there's not the opportunity to have the argument because and that's one of the problems when you have a, a unitary executive like we do is that if they're legislating, they have now become a dictator because they have no one at their same level that can speak to them. And so when they go out there and do something like that, and he's basically saying nobody should be charged with possession of marijuana. Well, that's a real problem because there's nobody, you know, the Bible says in Proverbs eighteen seventeen, the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Well, when the president says, I'm going to do this, there is not the process anymore to have that examination and to say, is this really the right thing to do? Are you doing this for the right reasons? The press does that a little bit, but the press still, the legislative process is to go through that and to actually force the issues on the table. And our country is just destroying itself because Unless you have those debates, everything becomes about emotionalism. Everything becomes about you don't care about what the effects will be. You don't think things through. It's just what has an emotional appeal. 
And it's, I think it's really damaging the country. Look at the student loan things, what happened there is that afterwards a lot of people went, wait a second, this is really stupid. This really hurts the working class. What you're doing is shifting from the poorer classes to the upper class. Not a smart move. But yet it wasn't, it was just bounced around people that agreed with each other. And I think the drug policy is the same way, is that nobody's thinking it through and thinking what the effects are going to be. They're just, you know, they bounce it around a closed loop that everybody agrees, and then they go, oh, we all agree, without actually having to deal with dissenting opinions. But, I mean, a lot of states, you know, have, you know, passed it even on ballot referendum, I think, in quite a, in, in several states at least. I don't know the numbers, but, you know, as much as those states have the capacity to debate something at a statewide level, I mean, they have. You know, it's, Right, and certain states have. And I'm not saying that that debate I'm saying that debate should take place, and if it's federal law, it should be take should take place in the federal legislature. And part of it is, I think, so we have this jaded view of how the legislature does things, and we think they just do things irregardless. The truth is, is a lot of things don't come to the floor because there are discussions. I mean, like you're talking about where they bat ideas, like with the with the college thing, that would have never made it to the floor because in the end it was a stupid idea and even the people even some of the people who were for it looked at it and said wait a minute this is flawed and so there is a part of it where they start kicking ideas around they talk about it they call people they start mentioning it and people go well what about this and ideas die i mean they really do they die they, a lot of them die in infancy you know what i mean they they never ever make it to a point and there are times where when they say we're going to push something through like obamacare where there was real galvanized view. In the end, they said, we're going to push this through. We believe this is the right thing. They still had, I mean, the amount of debate that went into that, the amount of concessions they had to make, the amount of structural changes they had to make were massive. I think your, your view is not jaded enough. Nothing comes to the floor unless it's already been discussed and, you know, horse traded away to make sure they have support but, for But it. that's not, but I'm saying that's, I don't think it's based on that's the opposite of jaded. There's a reason why the legislatures, right, legislators, a lot of times what they run on is we're not going to vote for anything unless it's been given five days before. And they immediately eliminate that because of this reason, right? Because Pelosi said that. You know, Bonnier before that said that all of them say my members are always going to have it for a reasonable period of time to read it. And then they never do it because they know as soon as it gets out there, people start to go, that's a stupid idea. That's a stupid idea. That's a stupid idea. And so they just want to give it full form and say, take it or leave it. You know, which is why Pelosi with Obamacare said, you know, you'll find out what's in it once you vote for it. Right. And that's become the. I mean, that's the bypass that's happening inside the legislature, just like Biden was doing it outside the legislature. Just bypass the conversation, bypass the pushing against ideas. And let's just go, this is what we're going to do, where nobody can respond to it. To approach it from a different angle, uh, possession of marijuana, a law against possession of marijuana is unconstitutional. So if the law is illegitimate, should you, be, should you be punished for it? And you're saying it's unconstitutional because it's not one of the designated powers? Yeah, there's limited powers. The federal government's not supposed to be regulating things inside the state. Well, it's, it would be it'd be interesting if Biden were making that argument. You know, we, we'd be having we would have kicked off this podcast with a different premise if he were saying, hey, by the way, this law is unconstitutional. We wouldn't we wouldn't have started talking like we are. So but right. he's not using that kind of, of right. Though, though that isn't that is an idea that that is at play now people don't really care about you know oaths to constitutions anymore but people are people the one of the arguments out there is why can't states decide this for themselves why does the federal government need to be doing it and you know it's yeah it was one of those things where the state states rights comes up when you when you don't like what the federal government is doing but the truth is is 91 percent of federal charges were were caught over the border which is an area where the government actually does have jurisdiction constitutionally. And so, I mean, the the bulk of federal charges weren't in an area where the gov- where you could say that the government federal government doesn't have Well, it's not it's they're not at they're not at the border, are they? Or yeah, they are. They're, yeah. they're at the border. Yeah. They're at the border. And so, I mean, I'm and uh, granted, I mean, the issue is is when he's coming up and saying this and people are hearing him say this, they have this vision of of the federal government barging into somebody smoking marijuana and they take and they charge him with possession and they take him and they throw him in jail and like you said, right now this isn't this isn't removing anybody from jail. This is dropping charges. Well, nobody from the federal right. penitentiaries. That may not be true in D.C. Right. The D.C. But I, but prisons I mean, are a different situation. Nobody knows the numbers for that. They and, aren't and, and organized even, And even are different in the sense of how things were – I mean, are, things are processed differently in D.C. because D.C. actually has police forces and things like that, whereas the federal government – 
generally just doesn't have police forces walking around and doing things. So, I mean, but people just have this, you know, this vision of what's being done. And President Biden knows when he says this that people have this vision, whereas in reality, federal enforcement of drug possession is vastly different than it is in the states. I mean, it, and it's just, it's not, you don't get charged. There's like, there's it really, is, you mean it's biased and subjective? <laughs> well, I just mean in the sense of where the federal government. Well, has, no, that's the same as it is in the state. Right, I meant where the federal government has jurisdiction to actually patrol for these things. It's it's mostly at but things they, like they at go, the but border. They, the fact that they don't break into people's houses and, you know, charge them with possession is just their choice. The same as them pardoning and choosing not to prosecute and pardoning people because they could. Sure. I mean, but they're, yeah, they, they're, claiming, they could they're get, claiming the power to. They, you're saying they could get a warrant to do it. Yeah. Right. Even when the states nullify, which is an interesting thing. Right. Right. Because, like, you go to – we've gone to Colorado before, and you go into the Denver airport, and the Denver airport has signs there that says, don't bring marijuana in here. It's now illegal. Because the federal government has chosen outside the, the airport – that they're not going to enforce it, but they're saying we are going to enforce it inside the airport, even though technically it's all Colorado. But right. it doesn't matter. They said, here, we're going to enforce it. And it's all the United States of America. <laughs> right, it's all the United States. So they're not, yeah, and so they're accepting. I mean, it's really interesting to me, the whole idea of nullification, because nullification since the founding of the country has been a major issue. And now, all of a sudden, groups that were very anti-nullification, right, like for instance, saying we're going to make it illegal to have abortion in our state, and they go, you can't do that. We must have a federal law. Now the, the Democrats, the same people are saying, oh, if Colorado says you can smoke marijuana, you have to allow them to let people smoke marijuana. And so the idea is that nobody is being forced to be consistent in their view of how the government should work, how the Constitution should work. You should take a step back and actually walk through what nullification is. Nullification is, is for one group to say we're going to nullify we're going to ignore the law that a different jurisdiction imposed now i agree with joshua that constitutionally the federal government does not have the right to regulate drugs it's a does you know there's delegated powers that were delegated by the states to the federal government although you can argue after the civil war a lot of that changed but fundamentally that's what the document was supposed to be and so because of that the states would have the right to regulate drugs or not regulate drugs. But instead what they're doing is they're passing laws and not saying the federal government doesn't have the right to make marijuana illegal. They're just saying we're going to nullify that. We're going to say that that's null and void in the District of Colorado. You know, before the Civil War, there was a lot of debate about this. After the Civil War, most people have just accepted a state cannot nullify federal law right. until marijuana kicked in. Then with marijuana, <laughs> that it's a strange term to use that it kicked in. But. <laughs> until the marijuana took effect, right? Yeah, until yeah. the marijuana took effect. But, but once the marijuana started kicking in as an issue, not as a drug, but as an issue, that all of a sudden everybody went, yeah, states should be able to nullify. It is, it is a really interesting look at our country that the people who mock the idea of states' rights which you go back to the Voting Rights Act, you go back to the Civil Rights Act, you go to all these acts where the Democratic Party is saying that the federal government is the one that dictates what every state will do. Now you go back earlier and it's the Republicans that are saying the federal government will dictate everything that we're doing. So it's, you know, Republican, Democrat, it changes where their positions are. But the Democratic Party, with very little pushback from the Republicans for, for 60 years, has been saying absolutely that the federal government law, no state can overrule it. And then all of a sudden you get marijuana where they want to be able to smoke marijuana and they're going, of course the state can overrule it. I mean, it's just the, the rapidity with which they rejected these fundamental ruling principles that they were operating on as a party is pretty amazing. I mean, and, and there's a sense in which if you're, if you're following this and you're thinking about it from a theological point of view, nullification is effectively the doctrine of interposition. I mean, that, you know, the federal government yes. can say something and then the state or it could be even a county level or at any, you know, at a lower level. It, it could even be a sheriff who, you know, when a sheriff takes, when he takes his, he, he says, swears to uphold the Constitution. And the sheriff could go, I cannot enforce this. This goes against the Constitution. And there, and there have been a past where people said he has to be removed. He can't be allowed to be there. He has no basis for doing this, even though his job requires him to have this level of discretion. And so, and now this is, like you said, and I mean, and, you know, you look at two issues. 
one issue is gun rights and one issue is drug rights, for want of a better term. The Republicans are saying for for drug or for guns that obviously a sheriff has the right to nullify. If the if the state says that you're not allowed to carry a gun from place to place, a sheriff should be able to go. They have Second Amendment rights to bear arms. They can bear arms. But then you look at the drugs and they're going, no, we regulated this at the federal level. They did. They've shifted now because enough states have come out that the Republican Party is pretty iffy. But they used to go, well, but the federal government has the right to regulate drugs. And the Democrats would take exactly the opposite positions. On this the is known as two principled issues. pragmatism. Yeah, without the principle. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is called pure pragmatism. <laughs> right. And and we've just and I think that the reason that we get here is that we've lost the idea that there's principles of how governance should work. And if you reject the principles of how governance should work, you end up with tyranny. And that's what in you know, is it a big deal that that Biden didn't let anybody out of prison in the federal prison system? In one level, no. In another level, yes, because this this again keeps undermining our rule of law as a nation. Or we could say, let's be principled, and uh, nullification is of bad laws and uh, unconstitutional laws is a good thing, even if done for you know a law that's low. And I'd be fine with that. I'd be fine. But what what President Biden is doing is not nullification. In other words, nullification. Like when you he's effectively nullifying as opposed to explicitly nullifying. Right. President Biden is actively ignoring the law while the law exists, and it's his job to enforce that law. But not unconstitutional laws. Not, but his point for doing it but is not the But if he made the argument it was unconstitutional, that would be a really different argument, and then I might even actually agree with him. What he said is he goes, it's just a bad law. He's just like, this is, this is a bad law. Nobody should, nobody should have to do this. And so, I mean, it's just he's just saying, you know, I've decided this, and this is, and, and, and the basis and functionally, is functionally he's nullified it, right? right? Because at this point, what federal prosecutor is going to now charge somebody with right. possession because yeah. it's an unwinnable case? But I don't think that any federal prosecutor has charged it for years Shh. anyway. Yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet, but <laughs> but I, I you're which is tied right into the same problem, right? Right, you're leading up to that. So, so the enforcement has stopped, <laughs> but not by legislative action, which is how it should have stopped. The president is supposed to be executing. He's the executive branch. He's supposed to be executing what the legislative branch does. And that's not what President Biden wants to do, or President Trump, or President Obama, or President Bush. But it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And and that's our fault as voters, because, because of what we think that the president is supposed to do. And so we keep electing presidents who have certain ambitions and we keep electing legislatures who don't have backbone and that's how we get where we are and even when you look at referent state referendums i mean you know the state referendums are a terrible idea for things like this because the reality is everybody going hey i don't want my neighbor who when i spoke pot with my neighbors i don't want to go to prison versus somebody going well, this means we're nullifying the federal government's law. What does that mean? This means it's going to have these repercussions and all kinds of other laws, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it really matters, but, but somebody sitting in Colorado saying, should we legalize pot? They're not, they're not in the position. They don't have the responsibility to think through those things. While the legislature is supposed to be getting, producing a consistent set of laws, and just by saying, well, now this is legal when it used to be illegal, by referendum, that's a real problem. Now, it's worse when it's done by, by judicial fiat, which happens a lot, too, which is how we got you know, homosexual marriage. Even though the, the federal government claims the authority to enforce drug policy everywhere, in practice, they don't. And enforcement of federal drug policy is very different than enforcement of drug policy in a state. Right. The FBI simply does not have the to the ability to take the time from framing people <laughs> right. for, for domestic terrorism right. act. They've got much bigger things on their plate, right? right. Marijuana. We, we've got the insurrection <laughs> plates thing. We've got, we've got politicians we're holding. The, you know, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, anyway, sorry. It's <laughs> a DEA's job. <laughs> but, I mean, because we talked, when we mentioned, I mean, that a, a large percentage of these people that are being arrested are coming over the border. And the, when you think about possession again, that the average amount they have is 48 pounds. So when you start thinking about someone coming across the border with 48 pounds, that's not somebody who's just bringing their personal stash with them. You know, I mean, this is this is somewhat you're, you're starting to deal with. Now they're dealing with dealers and they're dealing with other things. And so, I mean, but, whereas you deal at a state level and 
I'm just saying it's very different because if because the statement was remember, no one should be in jail for just possessing drugs, but that's not but what's happening. Is, but there is already a law against possession with intent to distribute. I understand that, right? And the fact that they could not or would not charge them with that is a real thing. But he, he says no one should be in jail for just possessing drugs, and I'm going to encourage all the governors to follow suit. At the federal level, he's not prosecuting anybody that he's encouraging the governors to stop prosecuting. You want to add to that? You well, go back. And, it go is ahead. like 9%. 91% of the people, and I forget, I think it was for a specific year, maybe 2016 or something. 91% of the people that were charged with possession, although it may have been a longer range than that, 91% of them that were charged with possession, it was from smuggling it across the border and the average amount that they had with them was 48 pounds. So so if I am that, – that just seems kind of shocking to me that that's what they get charged with. Is there some kind of judicial play-by-play that's happening where where somebody – you know, the, the, the scenario is somebody's trying to cross the border – I'm assuming they're doing it illegally, or and, and so. they're they're <laughs> illegally, and the drugs are at carrying. least they're smuggling something. They're smuggling a large quantity, you know, 48 pounds. I mean, mentally, I grew up on a farm. That's like a feed sack worth. Of, that's he, that's a lot. That's probably pressed into a suitcase. So, so that's, that's gonna, like a large suitcase. That's going to be, and there's no way that that's your personal amount. So you're intending to distribute it. So what's happening that they get charged with possession? Is that the result of a plea bargaining process? I think it's a result of two things. One is that sometimes they'll charge with more and then plea bargain to it. And then the other case is they just go, we already got the guy. We're going to throw him out. It will go on his record as a felony. He can't come back in the country. It's done. Right. So we've achieved everything that we want because we're not actually going to put him in prison. We're going to deport him. And so all of a sudden, though, all those people that are deported that are never allowed to come back in the country, President Biden just eliminated that off their record so now they can come into the country. Because from his position, he can make a statement. People who hear it believe he's talking about a certain category of person. The actual thing that he's doing is he's making a real change to immigration policy. And he's, you know, I mean, he's he's nullifying a law. He's buying votes. He's changing immigration policy. And he's putting pressure on states to do something that has nothing to do with what he's doing at all. So so what you're saying is that there's kind of this bait and switch with with what's actually being dealt with are people who have large quantities but who aren't in custody anyway. But then what he's encouraging the governors to do is to deal with that kind of person. And the, the picture he's planting in their mind is somebody gets pulled over for a broken taillight and then gets arrested because they have six ounces in the passenger seat. Right. And so and there's a couple things there that are really important to understand. So at the federal level, now remember this pardon is for Washington, D.C. too, which basically ap- operates like a state. So he is affecting it for a state because he can do it for Washington, D.C. But the other 9% that are federal and not Washington, D.C. that are pardoned, I guarantee every one of those cases is not simple possession. It's that they had other things, and what happens, the way that our court system works now is somebody gets arrested for something, and they'll charge them with, with 10 charges, five of which are absurd that are too high, one of which is like a lot less than what they did, and then there'll be other things in the middle. And the way you get to a 98% uh, plea bargain rate, which is what our federal rate is, is most of the people, they'll go, we'll charge you with possession. Yes, you were definitely distributing with intent. You were definitely, maybe you had a gun, maybe you had this other stuff. But if you accept this and go to prison for six months, because those other ones, a lot of times they don't have that much longer of a prison sentence. And this will be all that shows up on your record. But the reality is if they took it to court, they could have proved other things. They just, it just wasn't worth the time and effort. It was better to get people to plea. Or sometimes they couldn't have. Sometimes they couldn't have, but then and, people, none of, and when you don't br- bring it to court, you never know. Right, I, I agree with that. I mean, it's a horrible system. I mean, sometimes we have to do a, po- a podcast on plea bargains. Plea bargains have become horrific in terms of justice in this country. It's basically eliminated justice in this country because it's how much. I mean, because they plea things that are ridiculous. But that's for another podcast of people that are convicted with possession of marijuana. One statistic that I don't remember where the site was that I read, but that 92% of them had been charged with more serious charges and they pled down to possession. And 8% of the cases was that the most serious charge. In 92% of the cases, there were other charges that they pled down. And so 
or that's what they were convicted of. So when you look at it, you know, you have to understand that that so often when you hear that somebody's convicted of something, the reality is the the state usually thought there was something more serious that they could charge them with, but they didn't want to put the effort in to prove it before a jury. And so because of that, they ended up with this. So whenever you read anybody, you have to recognize they were almost certainly charged with something else. That's just what normally happens. Say say he was, you know, he was all clear. Everything was going to be great for him to pardon people. But then he says, oh, wait, there's this issue with uh, – with the fact that some of these people may have done other things that we ignore through plea bargains. I mean, at that point, you know, how is he going to fix the whole system? Well, what all this part of it is, is that people should be pushing back and saying you pardoned all these people. What, who were you actually pardoning? You were pardoning people that pled to this to get out of other things. And it's a broken system, and I don't think people understand how broken our judicial system is right now because it's very broken. Which is the sort of conversation you could have had if this went through the legislative channels. Which, right, it, and even like after the fact with the, the loan dismissal stuff, all of a sudden you start to have this churn and people start to say these things. But with a pardon, because it is blanket, there's nothing anybody can do. It's a right that the president has to do it. These conversations aren't had. People just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was really trying to help people that had their their little bag of marijuana, their stash that they were using to smoke. And, you know, look at how nice he was instead of look at what he's really doing is he's freeing all these people that that had 48 and, pounds on average. And then using it as a political tool to try and motivate governors to follow suit. Right. It, it's not a, It's not a case like when a like typically happens when a president leaves office and pardons a bunch of his buddies. Right. And to, to your question, I mean, in one sense, I know you, I don't know how seriously you were asking it, but how does he fix it? He didn't run for the office where you get to fix it legislatively. He was in the legislature for years. And so if his point was this, the legislature is broken, he could have made that point. He could have made that argument. He could have come out and said, this is why I'm doing this. He could have actually said, I need, you know, I mean, in the end, the real issue is where he's leading, if he's being a leader, where he's leading us to, I don't understand where he wants us to go. I don't understand in what way he wants us to follow him, except for sort of being that well, thinking that the, the law world doesn't that, have to be right. obeyed. Lawless is where I think he wants to right. lead us to. But isn't it pretty clear that the way he wants to lead us that marijuana is legal nationwide? Not necessarily. Because why wouldn't you just push the legislature to do that? And I think he has he could push the legislature to do that now at the federal level. I think he could. Presidents do this all the time. I mean, presidents do this constantly. Presidents go, I'm going to go and make this case to the nation. I want to see this get pushed. I want to see the Democratic Party needs to make this. I'm going to be making the case in the pulpit. It's going to be part of the State of the Union. It's what we're, I mean, you know, instead of instead of me leaving Afghanistan, let's talk about so, changing, you know, I mean... I mean, one part of it is he also is moving to legalize to uh, legalize it because I believe that the law is based on schedules of classifications of drugs, not specific drugs. So I thought part of his thing with the pardon was also telling the FDA to look into uh, changing the schedule of marijuana so that it wouldn't be regulated by which, the federal government. Which, if they, which, which has a huge it, problem not, anyway, right? But then, but then, you know, bureaucratically, according to him, then the bureaucracy has the power to has been given the power by the legislature to legalize it. Right. And that's one of the big problems is that in this, the Supreme Court's even starting to go, wait a second, this is really messed up because of a Supreme Court decision that says that you basically defer to the executive branch as to what the legislation says. And so now all of a sudden the executive branch is the one that makes these decisions. When the law was passed, marijuana was clearly intended to be impacted by it. And now he's saying that that by a, the fiat of a bureaucrat that he can change it. That's not how the system is supposed to work. But did the law say marijuana in it? It didn't, but everybody knew what the class Schedule One drug was that at the was time. Pretty easy to put in if you don't want to turn over power to the bureaucracy. Right, and I'm not saying that the legislative branch didn't. What I'm saying is the people need to start to say we need to stop turning. We've messed up our political system, and the end of it will be tyranny. Will be ever increasing tyranny because, in a real way, a lot of tyranny has already come. Charles, to answer your question, where is he leading? I. I'm going to admit up front, this is pure speculation, but this is coming not that long after there was a significant news story with the, the Brittany Griner case. Brittany Griner was a, a 
professional women's basketball player who was in Russia for some reason, I don't know why, um, but was arrested in Russia and is now in a Russian prison for marijuana possession. And there's been a huge diplomatic push from Biden's office trying to free her and get her back stateside. Coupled with that diplomatic push are all of these cries of hypocrisy for because she's in prison for Russia for what on paper are the same reasons that people in the United States are in prison for, you know, and people have pointed out that Vice President Harris used to prosecute people in California for those same kind of reasons. So, so it could be a little bit of a got caught with our pants down on this one, you know, and, and let's see if we can't level things out. Yeah, you're right. We, you know, I think that that's, that's at least part of the equation is that particular story. And I think even tying to that is who, who wrote the legislation for much of our drug laws? Joseph His Biden. name was Senator Biden. <laughs> the drug law in 1994 was written by Biden as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. All these laws that he's complaining about, he was the author of. And so politically, that puts him in a position where he's the author of them. He's in trouble. He and feels so like he has the right to change them because he wrote them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what he's thinking, but I think he's also thinking that it has real damage to him, especially the argument that he made as to why he has to do this is he says it's because of systemic racism. That's the reason that he has to do this. And he's the systemic racism and in he's a lot the of these systemic, and, it, and the drug policy that he passed in 1994 – it definitely targeted blacks more heavily than whites because it was targeting crack cocaine rather than powder cocaine. The black community uses crack cocaine far more than powder cocaine. The white community uses powder cocaine. They have the same effects. They have the same neurological effects, everything else. There's no difference. But one became this boogeyman that you go out and say, we need to really destroy this. This is destroy. And it was, it was definitely related to, I mean, I'm not saying that that was the motivation was, but I can tell you that passing that law definitely affected blacks much harsher in terms of sentencing than how whites were treated. Right. No question in Biden's law. And so now Biden turns around and he's going, we have to do this because we're unfairly treating blacks. Well, I'm sorry. That's what he wanted <laughs> to make the argument about why I say that. It's what he said in his statement. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. The other thing that would have happened if it was discussed in legislature is this is a blatant lie. There is no truth in this statement at all. I mean, and there's plenty of statistics to show this is a statement that the ACLU puts out. That's where he got it. I don't know that that's where he got it, but it's widely, you know, this is one of the big pushes the ACLU is doing. It used to be about freedom of speech. Now it's about freedom of marijuana. But you look at it and this statement is blatantly false. This isn't even close to being true. I think one third of all one third of all people that are put into drug treatment programs are black. The proportion of society is thirteen percent are black in the US. So it's roughly three times higher rate of going into drug treatment programs, which matches the three time higher rate of incarceration. I mean, all these things tie together. It's he's saying this that that the use is similar, and it's simply not true. Now, the same number of people may use it, meaning it might be 70% of whites and 70% of blacks, but the rate of use is dramatically different in the black community than it is in the white or in the Hispanic community, like dramatically different. And so it's a real problem that You're saying that sudden, the, part, the part that's a lie is, well, both parts are a lie, but white and black, white, black, and brown people use marijuana at similar rates. You're saying that is not that true. That is not true. Which means in the end, the second part is not true. I mean, the second part may be true that they are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at higher rates, not disproportionately higher rates. Because right. Because in the because end, the proportion is relative to, the to their use. usage. And so you look at, you know, 70% higher cannabis dependency, you know, Blacks are 62% more likely to use marijuana, according to a study in D.C., than whites were. It's, it's simply he statistically— He could still fall back on a systemic racism view that the reason why they use it at a higher rate is because of something racial. But, but that's not and the And I would actually agree with that if you right. make that argument. Right. I would agree with that. But that's not the argument he's making. He's making it that—so he's trying to—right now, he's basically— politically, I think, where he's standing is you have all these people that are saying defund the police— 
and President Biden is basically giving them a carrot because they're saying to fund the police because because, you know, they're anti-black, they're anti-Hispanic, even though a lot of them are black now in the inner cities. The proportion is about the, the same as the community, the, the, the police. The police are black, right. And so all of a sudden these black policemen are racist, which is their argument. Systemically racist. Systemically racist. And so you look at that and Biden's trying to to support that position that there's all this systemic racism. And so the pardon is to give a bone to that part of his party to, to encourage them to go vote during the midterms because it's clearly related to the midterms. But he's doing that by making false statements that right. just are not statistically ver- verifiable. Defang the police, I guess. <laughs> well, and it's also say, I agree with you that, yes, I can't say to defund the police, but I pre- agree with you that the police are going after black and brown people. And so I'm going to do this to try to take away the damage that they've done, because even though I can't say defund the police, that's what I really want to do. And that's what I think, you know, is an element in here, too. Right. And the Brittany Kreiner case just being sort of a high profile newspaper. Ver- I mean, it's the politicized version of, of that, effectively. But when he makes his announcement, his announcement, he's being very explicit who he's who he's right. pandering to, right? He's pandering to people who think that the country is systemically racist in our enforcement of our laws. So we've talked about all this. We've talked about how the, there are problems. We've talked about how we think the way that President Biden's going about this is wrong, not even just wrong in policy, but also wrong in the legal way he's approaching it. We think that there's problems with our with our actual policy. How should we deal with this? What is the right way to, to start thinking about this and dealing with it? One thing that I think is important to remember is that the only way we can fix these things is to go back to to political principles that people have known for a long time. There's a reason why there's a legislative branch. I completely agree with Joshua that the, the federal government is not the one that should be regulating it. Yes, it should regulate it at the border. There are cases where it should regulate it. But in general, it shouldn't be the one that's regulating it. What it should be doing is recognizing that the states that all all powers that aren't given to the federal government are reserved to the people and states, respectively, or states and people, respectively, if you want to quote it right. But, you know, so one thing that should happen is the federal government should just get out of it because it's, it's not their role. That's not what they're there for. And at the states, what we need to do is stop thinking referendums are the way to do things. Referendums are the way for legislators to be cowards. That's what referendums are for. Instead of a, a legislator fighting for it, instead of him saying, here, I'm going to defend my position in front of the people, he's just going to say, let the people vote for it. Well, the whole idea of a representative democracy, a representative republic, is that you send a representative who you say, I trust that representative to make the judgment so that I don't have to consider all the information. And until we start to use our system the way that it was designed to be used and that has been used for, for many years in many different places where you say, yeah, the legislative branch is the one that needs to, to determine these things instead of, you know, democracies don't work. And what we've done with, direct, with the drug policy is take it from the jurisdiction of the people who should have jurisdiction, put it in a foreign jurisdiction, and then respond to that with direct democracy. Well, that's a horrible solution. We're just adding problem upon problem. Let's get back to a system that can actually work. Let legislators have the debate, let them decide what the drug policy should be, and put it back where it belongs. So if that's the structure then for, we've largely been criticizing how this came about. And, and you're saying, here's how, here's how we ought to be having the debate. Great. Right. So now we've got that framework. I think that still leaves at least half your question of what should the outcome of that debate be? What should <laughs> drug policy be? Um, you know, all drugs legal all the time. <laughs> I mean, before you know if, they're, if you should make them illegal, you need to know if they're wrong to use in the first place. Because that's definitely up for debate. I mean, obviously, and all the people who want to legalize drugs. But even a lot of, you know, you go on Christian forums, and there's a lot more question about that than you might expect. And and I think you could go potentially even more fine-grained than that. There's a question of are they, they wrong to use? And then independent of whether or not they're wrong to use, is it the government's role and responsibility to regulate their use, right or wrong in their use? 
Or what government? Yeah, what level of government? Because part of the problem is is that when we say the word government, we think of only one thing, as opposed to all the different governments that kind of exist in the world, from familial level governments to you know kind of even society. There's a societal aspect to government. There's, I mean, there's there's lots of different. Like right now, a lot of drug policy really gets enforced by businesses. I mean, you know, I mean, there's, I mean, if you want to work here, you have to take a drug test periodically. If you fail your drug test, you get fired. Well, I mean, that's a regulation. Especially as soon as the states that said we're not going to regulate drugs anymore, it wasn't like it went away, which I think is a really important point, right? It's not like they're, the enforcement about the use of drugs went away. No, companies started to say, well, we're going to start to do drug tests and we're right. going to check. And the punishment is you can't be here as opposed to that you should be put in prison. And when you think about it, right, like think about drunkard, right? Drinking. The Bible says you shouldn't be a drunkard, right? We can all agree the Bible says that. Does that mean the government should put a drunkard into prison? No. No, the Bible never says that. Does it mean a church should put a drunkard out? Right. Yes, yes the Bible says no drunkard will inherit the kingdom of God. The and by put the church put, out, you mean put them out of being called a member of that church. Right. Not if a, a drunkard comes into the church. I mean, no, you might, you right, might put, right. but I mean, you know what I mean? Yes. To be really clear. That's, that's a a worthwhile distinction, but a drunkard should not be a member of a church. Doesn't mean he can't attend, just can't be a member of a church. And so, yeah, the jurisdictions, they speak to things and they say this is right or wrong, but it doesn't mean everything goes to the civil magistrate to say, you smoked pot, you should go to prison. But if you if somebody's smoking pot, should they be put out of the church? Yes, right. I would argue. Well, and I, you know, just well, but even there, you have to have nuances. But, but right here, the nuance we've been dealing with hasn't actually been the use of the drug. It's been the possession of it, right? Even though we know it's it's clouded with okay, we pled down to that, <laughs> but wow, that was not intended. But so so I mean, honestly, what we're what we're talking about here is is basically what the country was going through during the prohibition era with alcohol, where simple possession, if you will, was an offense. It was a federal offense, wasn't it? Yes. And so so what, and at least that was constitutional, right? And but you know, can you support that? Biblically, can you say that it's that it's from from the Bible that you cannot possess such and such substance at any level? I mean, that's really the kind of a fundamental question here. And I think implicit in that is it's the question: Is there any good use for these things? Because the answer biblically for wine is yeah. It says that you know wine brings joy. It says you know alcohol. If right. you want to worship God, take strong drink up. Can someone justify in the church having pornography? You know right, I mean? there's I mean, a there big difference between that, the two. But in pornography, though, right, I mean, that's something that man's making. But some of these other things, like marijuana, and granted, it's been twisted, so it's a lot more potent than it used to be. You're starting to say that God made this this weed that that has no purpose to it. And I'm not sure we should be saying that. And some of it can be just the purpose is that it tempts people the purpose is that it, you know, that it's a briar, that, it, you know, are there reasons for those things? Yes, there's biblical pictures for that. But we have to start and say, you know, God did give these things for medicine, so is there any valid medicinal use? And I would say for marijuana, in some cases, not a high percentage. I mean, it's, it's there's <laughs> a lot that of people percentage. that are lying about it. Yeah. But it's really hard to make it illegal if you say to treat certain kinds of eye pains and stuff that – that using marijuana is helpful. And it seems to me that there's plenty of studies that advocate that it is helpful. And so all of a sudden, then you've made something illegal, like prohibition, where God says there's times where it's helpful and useful, and now you've said you're eliminating those to punish the people that will abuse it. And, and it's, I mean, you, I don't think you can grow cashews in the United States because right. the so something, that, shell. something that people eat all the time you can't grow in the U.S. because then you're possessing drugs. Um, like hemp rope used to be huge. That's the main rope. Delicious. I don't. They may have changed it, but for <laughs> a long time you, you could not. <laughs> Sorry, hemp rope. They they did change it some years ago, but until five or six years ago or something like that, it was illegal to grow hemp, even though that makes the best rope fiber right. for natural fibers. Dan, you earlier you just you mentioned the. The distinction or the, the question being, is there any good use for it? Right. When, as Christians, we approach it with a bad theological framework of thinking that within a material thing that there's, that evil might reside in that thing. And, and, and because of that. 
And I would I would argue that there is such things as evil inventions, but not but I'm, I'm the plant that, that God created. Right. Sure, that sure. That was actually my argument that I was trying to created get to. things, you know, or things that there's have a had difference between a, that and pornography. A small amount of yeah, exactly. Small amount of cultivation. You know, you, you obviously you have to do some production to go from plants to food, but. Um, but, you know, I mean, this is, again, going back to prohibition, when you had arguments about, say, that demon rum. Right. Well, what you're doing when you say that is you're, you're placing the problem, the evil, in the thing and not in the use of the thing. And I think that's how we think about a lot of drugs is the problem is in the thing and not the use of the thing. Sure. Uh, and so the, that's not – I'm, I'm not making a slam dunk argument for the – that there is no case in which there's not evil in the thing, but you've got to make that case. I mean, I think, I think you can, well, you can definitely say that when God created the world, he looked at it and he said, the world is good. Every green plant I have given you for food. Right. I mean, he, I mean he, and he looked at the world and said, my creation is good. So, I mean, everything that God created is good. And I think that you can just be pretty blanket about it. Everything God created is good. And the, the fall did have an effect. So right. you, you have to be careful to measure that and say, okay, so what effect did the fall have? But I right. think... In the end, I would argue that something like, you know, what's the difference between cocaine and morphine? Not much. The main difference is one's used in a hospital and one person, one's used in somebody's home that they're trying to get pleasure out of it right, rather than removing pain. But are they both – can you use cocaine to deal with pain? Yes, you can. What was the difference between uh, oxycodone without a prescription and with a prescription? Right. Which would be the that, same. I mean, I mean they do use cocaine same. in the hospital for nosebleeds. You okay. I mean? I mean, you know what I mean? And so, I mean, you can – they, okay, they, I didn't know that. But, yeah. but the point is, is that, that all of a sudden we've, and again, I completely, it's really an Arminian view, right? The Arminian view is that things from outside us are what drives us to sin, not what comes from inside man is what drives us to sin. I mean, that's the basic Arminian view. That's why the Arminian believes that you can choose God. And so then all of a sudden it's the exterior things that are, that are evil. And so that's why we look and we say, we don't say, well, these are good uses of marijuana, and if there's going to be punishment for it, it should be punishment for abusing it, not using it. So, for instance, the person, had, I forget what the, the eye issue is that people say that marijuana is good for, and they've done tests for it and stuff, and they've shown that it's useful for that. If somebody was in your church and smoking marijuana to deal with that, I wouldn't excommunicate them for that. My mother had shingles, and the, the shingles caused a nerve in her eye to get inflamed that was causing her intense pain for, for you know, 14 months or something. And she was on serious drugs. And the, the doctor said, well, the best thing for this would actually be marijuana. And my mother's like, no, I can't use marijuana. Well, you know, the reality is it's, a, it's, it's not that much different. It's just how we've portrayed it, but does it have good use? And if, if she was in our church and she was using marijuana because the doctor said this is the only thing to take away the migraine that's lasting 20 hours a day, I don't think anybody would vote for excommunication. Or any form of church discipline. <laughs> or any form of church discipline. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> but my point is, though, it's when they start to abuse and they use it for things that it's not supposed to be used for. Right. And so what we've done, because, and we've categorized drugs and the schedules and stuff like that, we've created all these scheduled drugs and all this stuff that, that it's not based on abuse, it's just based on the drug. It's caused us to gloss over whole aspects of how we view sin and what we think. I mean, like Jonathan was saying, there was a point where, where with with the uh, oh, with the temperance movement, there was a point with the temperance movement where the way people thought about alcohol was they would, and they and it's still to this day, that alcoholism is viewed as a disease. You know, what I mean, I mean, and so there's this part of it where we don't think of we've we've actually we've distanced ourselves from even thinking about sin properly. We've distanced ourselves from thinking about how we. Th- how we use things, how we approach things. We let things be socially stigmatized versus actually being stigmatized because of the actual sin that's being done with them. And we don't prosecute people and deal with the actual sin that's being done. We deal with everything else. And I mean, this is like, I believe in the 1920s, there were opium dens in the United States. This isn't like, you know, you hear about in China. In China, it was a much greater problem in a lot of ways. But the solution of that wasn't to say, why would we have opium dens? The solution is to say, let's outlaw the opium dens. Instead of recognizing this is an indication of a real sin problem that the church needs to be clearing, this is the sin problem. Right. And I mean, with marijuana, I think that there's pretty clear sin problems. 
and even one of the reasons that you look at it and they say blacks, you know, are persecuted and convicted at disproportionately high rates. Well, actually, marijuana use tracks pretty close to the level of welfare. And it has more to do with welfare in a lot of ways than it does anything else. A lot of the abuse on welfare, I mean, the proportion of abuse is pretty close to the level of welfare used by, by the races. And so we look at these things and we want to pretend like there aren't real connections, right? You give somebody so that they can be idle all the time, that they never have to work, and a certain group of people will migrate towards that. And a lot of other people will, because they're in that situation, they'll remain in that situation. And that's why inner cities have a much higher conviction rate for things like possession and selling and everything else, because that's where the, the groups of people are that are on welfare. And one way, if you want to solve the drug problem, is you solve the drug problem by doing what you need to do to get the people out of the situation where they want to use drugs all the time. Eliminate the, the welfare program so that you're paying people not to work, and you'll help your drug problem significantly. There are people going, great, all we have to do to solve the drug problem is solve the welfare problem. <laughs> but the welfare problem is actually easy to solve if you're willing to do it. It's just that people don't have the political will to do it. Right. And it's, and it's the political – it's the will to actually talk about sin in a reasonable way, to right. actually talk about what sin is, talk about how it affects people, and talk about how you deal with it. And, you know, talking about, you know, uh, like, like uh, prohibition, you know, I think, I think an argument could be made that if the government was going to try to solve society's ills, they were more on track with prohibition because, I mean, the numbers I've seen, alcohol kills a lot more people than, uh, you know, drugs. And more people use alcohol than use drugs. So why are you going after drugs and not alcohol when that's actually arguably causing more harm? But but that was tried and that failed. So, you know, that's... And it was more acceptable at a society level to do it with drugs. So it's hard to say where it would be with drugs if they weren't illegal. And uh, you know what I mean? Because maybe drugs would cause more. I think you look at what's happening in California now. You look at what's happening in Colorado and there has been a shift that there's real, you know, California and the, you know, the amount of criminal activity has increased, even though they keep saying it would decrease if you legalize it. It just simply wasn't true. I mean, that's what the evidence shows now is, and part of it is California has to have really high taxes because they have a huge welfare state. So because of that, their taxes are really high. So they have as much of a black market now as they did before legalization. But the punishment is a lot less, which means a lot more people are getting into it. You try to have the civil government constrain all sin, and then it gets really complicated. Right. But part of, right, and it is, you know, the sin of idleness isn't constrained at the, at the civil magistrate. It's actually promoted at the civil magistrate, which is part of the problem. Because think about it. If you had a family where, where you know, the son comes home, and I'm not now, it's common enough in the people that are older, but if you go back, you know, 50 years, if the son was caught, you know, smoking marijuana and you put him out of the house before there was this whole government system that would prop him up, that was a real cost to him. That would be, you know, right. that would be very difficult for him to continue and to move on in his life. Now the government will come in and swoop and do all kinds of things for him. So all of a sudden the power of the father to say, I will not allow this in my home because that was used to be a huge lever. Now the amount of leverage you have has been greatly decreased because the government There's someone going, in. come to us, we'll yeah, take come care to of us. it. And so what that means is that, the, that what the government doing is undermining other governments, other, other constraints on sin, so they can't constrain sin the same way. And that's, that's part of the reason that it gets complicated is because these sins, like you were saying, these sins feed each other. And in our country, we're definitely feeding, you know, one sin is feeding each other all over the place. And so now just legalizing it wouldn't help as much as if it was done before you have all these other government programs, because all these other government programs mitigate your other, other authorities' ability to, to constrain the sin. And if you look at biblical law rather than the government undermining the parents' authority of inability to constrain sin, I mean, they're the— you know, God gave Israel, he didn't tell them to, for the government to punish drunkards, but only to um, support the parents and, and give them, or, you know, or reinforce them with the sword when they wanted to punish their son who was a drunkard. To say that there's a point where they could, the government would say, yes, the, the parents testified that the son's a drunkard 
and a glutton, and so we will even execute him. Well, they would execute him for, you know, it says in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 20, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and whom when they have chastened him will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out of the, to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And so he was actually being executed for not obeying his mother and father. The being the drunkard and the glutton is going, well. That's the evidence. This is the evidence. But other than that, the civil magistrate isn't supposed to do anything with gluttony or drunkard unless, you know, you, you, you know, do something that's negligent and cause a death. Then you do something. If you steal to buy alcohol, then you do something. And so the, the laws that were to constrain it were when it produced evil that was given to the civil magistrate to constrain. You don't just say, well, it's evil to be a drunkard. Sure, it's evil to be a drunkard. It's evil to be covetous. But are we now right. going to throw people in prison for being covetous? Right. I mean, I my, mean dad, my dad knew a guy 30 years ago who told him when he went to buy a car, he said, find out when the car was made. He said, if the car was made on a Monday, don't buy it because they're just coming off being drunk for the weekend. If the car was built on a Friday, don't buy it because they were starting to drink. <laughs> I mean, but he said he worked in the auto industry, and he just said, this is so common in the auto industry. I mean, I'm, I mean, there's a part where he may have been exaggerating, but he worked in the auto industry and the level at which he said this was endemic. And so these people had jobs. They had functioning jobs. But he was saying there was a certain level where he looked at them and said, like you said, they weren't being put in jail. They weren't being prosecuted. They weren't so unlawful that they couldn't have even have gainful employment. Right. But, they'd sober up in time for work. Right. But in the end, I mean, they right. I mean, and so there is this part of it where we've we've decided to treat things in a completely different way than the Scripture says you should treat them. The way a business deals with the drunkard is they say, well, you can't do the job. You don't go, you should be in prison. And so it's almost like when that drink and the abuse of alcohol reaches a point where it's affecting other things that's what you get punished for a lot of it is not for the drinking itself until you get to the family and the family you know their rebellion could be you need to stop drinking and they wouldn't stop drinking right you need to stop eating and they wouldn't stop eating but you know other jurisdictions it's only when they cross other lines that those other jurisdictions actually kick in and start to say no now, I would say that with drug use, there is another issue with it, which drug use is frequently associated with sorcery, with demonology, with Satan worship, with idolatry. And if you look, historically, this has been true, and this continues to be true. But there's a difference between saying, I'm going to smoke a joint, and going, I'm going to worship Satan while I smoke a joint. And when, it's, when you say, I'm going to worship Satan while I smoke a joint, that's what the government is actually supposed to step in and stop. Right. It's not the marijuana. It's when you cross these other borders, these other lines that God has clearly given to the civil magistrate to enforce. And we're not even willing to talk about that. Right. We're barely we, we're barely we willing it, to put somebody in prison for killing exceptions a baby. for those. Right. You know, if you if it's part of your religion to smoke peyote, for example, because you have some native religion, then that's okay, even though in all other circumstances it's wrong. Right. And so we make this exception that says if you're worshiping a false god, you can do it. And God says in his law that it's when you use it to worship a false god, that's when you stop it. Right. We're having trouble convincing our nation to put somebody in prison for killing a baby. So, I mean, you know, we're a long ways away from... But we are putting people in for simple possession. Right. No, I understand. Not very much anymore, but it still happens. I remember when Nancy Reagan was doing her anti-drug push. And, you know, it actually had some success, even though it's uh, this is your brain on drugs and they do these commercials and stuff. The frying egg. Yeah. Yeah. They just say no. Just say no and all that stuff. And and some of it, though, when she was doing that is what she was talking about is the hopelessness of the drugs. But what the church should recognize is one of the reasons that we have the explosion of drugs is because the church isn't saying there's much hope in this world. And one of the reasons people go to drugs is they want to escape the world, whether it's alcohol or other drugs. It's about escapism. And until the church is saying there's actually hope in this world, there's actually good things that can come in this world, there's actually hope for you to advance, there's hope for you to find your life meaningful, there's hope in Christ, obviously, which is the ultimate hope and the only real everlasting hope. But the church is kind of saying the opposite. Everything's terrible. Everything's getting worse and worse. We have to recognize that, that 
our eschatology, the general eschatology of the church, that all these things, we're selling drugs. Right. We're pushing drugs. Because what we're saying is there's no hope for anything. So people then go, I should just escape. And what's the fastest way to escape? Well, I'll put some heroin in my arm. I'll smoke some pot. I'll... And we're pushing escapism. And the church needs to shut up and stop hating the world God made. Watching it, knowing people that use drugs and watching it. Hopelessness ties so much to drug use. Right. I mean, it's, it's when the other things stop working. I mean, because in the end, I mean, a lot of things in the world, from video games to, to certain types of entertainment, you know, those are all passive, you know, they're all minor forms of escapism. And then you start, I mean, and I say minor, I mean, they're a way to escape without that much of an immediate impact on your life but it definitely has impact over time. But, I mean, you start moving to stronger and stronger things to escape. Or you add, right, because right. you drink while you play the video games, you smoke pot while you play the right. video games. And, you know, people talk about a gateway drug, but we need to recognize how this works, that because there's hopelessness and they start smoking marijuana and the marijuana doesn't give them hope, it does escalate. Right. Right? They say it's not a gateway drug. Yeah, but they did studies. 100% of people that use cocaine, that use heroin, 100% of them, they couldn't find in a study that was like 2,000 people, they couldn't find a single person that had not used marijuana first. Right. So, so it's not like so marijuana forces you there. It's the nature of sin that moves you from marijuana to, to stronger all drugs. Not marijuana users use those right. hard drugs, but everybody who's using the heavier drugs started with marijuana. Right. And so it's not like, yeah, that you, you jump through the chute and you're on your way because maybe you find hope or maybe you find a mixture that, that you know, you use the marijuana and that's enough to, to get you through the day without, without just, you know, being consumed by hopelessness. But if it's not enough, then you just keep going stronger and stronger. When you, when you talk about the, the things that motivate somebody to go towards this, it's one of them we've, we've mentioned, it's hopelessness. But, but how do you get to that? hopelessness i mean we're using the word hopelessness here but people would talk about it as depression you know that's that's the clinical term for that's replacing a biblical term i mean one of the ways that you get there is is hey you're not busy enough you don't have things that are you don't have productive things that are filling your day and so you start looking around for something to deaden the pain, something to deaden the emptiness. And, and this is one of the things you resort to are these kinds of drugs. And it's not – at that point, you're beyond the case of saying, oh, I'm using this drug recreationally. You're, you're trying to use it therapeutically. And so when you look at Jordan Peterson, who's really well-known and listened to a lot and followed by a lot of people – and like all the men that follow him, in the end, that's what they're looking for. Somebody to say, you don't just have to sit on your stoop and smoke drugs all the time. The reason why binge watching happens is because I need something. I found, okay, there's eight seasons. Fantastic. For eight seasons worth of shows, I have a purpose. And it's just to get to the end of this. Se- and when I get done, there's I got to go find something else to watch. But while you're doing it, you feel like you have something to do because you're consuming a set thing. You're filling your, I mean, and. This is, I mean, you look at what's happened. We see these phenomena that are occurring, and people go, it's so interesting that people are doing that. No, they're just, they're right. just on the chain of things. They're just looking for things. See, we forget how tied these things are together and just how desperate people become. Because when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we immediately think of hope and sexuality and you know, sexual perversion. But Ezekiel 16, 49 says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. The pursuit of homosexuality, the pursuit of all these things, this is caused by an abundance of idleness. Right. If you have no purpose, you work to find some kind of purpose. And it's not listed there, but drug use would fall into that, right? Because there's abundance of idleness, because you're trying to escape the uselessness of your life, you come up with something to rebel, something to do something so that it, it has some purpose. Because having children would have been something. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, having children would have taken away a lot of your idleness. <laughs> and so there's, yeah, I mean, in the end, I mean, let's, let's, let's just be honest. What it, there's a real rebellion that it's against. And so as we, as we look at that, we should just recognize that as we are in a nation that promotes idleness, that, yeah, we've, we're, we're promoting drug use. We're promoting the hopelessness. We're saying that there's no purpose to anything. And let's be serious. When the church says 
that we're not supposed to go out there and and change the world. We're not supposed to turn the world upside down. We're not supposed to teach people to obey the things that God said. When the church says what you're supposed to do is come here on Sunday and sit like a lump and not do anything, the church is promoting idleness as much as the civil magistrate is promoting idleness. Right. And that's a real problem. Right. Pastors, in a sense, pastors could learn a little bit of something from Jordan Peterson. There's a part of it where, I mean, and they shouldn't be as neutral, but the pastor can say, find something in the church that the church is doing and do it. You know what I mean? There's this right. part if of you're, where if, if you're, you're, instead of grumbling and complaining about how depressed you are, find something to do. There's plenty of work. You right. Know, the, redeem the time. The days are full of evil is what God says. And what Satan says is just be idle. You'll like right. it. it. It's miserable. And people escape in various ways. And one of the escape is drugs. As we've been talking about this, we've been talking about that the church is allowing the society to be hopeless. And faith is the substance of things hoped for. I mean, you cannot separate faith faith from hope. But yet, here we are, not as the church saying, there is hope in the world because there is a God who created all things and he did it for a purpose. When the church has no purpose, when the church sees there's no advancing, when the church says it's not going to cause anything to happen, we shouldn't be surprised that drugs are such a problem in our society. We've told them they need to go someplace else. The church needs to repent and stop telling them to go someplace else. Thanks for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.